Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 10, if you're not there. Making the most of life. A police officer in Australia pulled over a driver that was speeding down this road, and when he pulled him over, he found that he had a very good excuse for his speeding. He had just fought off a deadly snake attack and had tossed a snake in the back of his um, truck and was speeding to a hospital. The man was going down a road, and as he's driving, he noticed something coming out of this brown object coming out of his gear shift, and it turned out to be a, the most deadly snake in Australia, a brown snake, and he tries to hit the brakes, and the more he moved his leg, this thing started to wrap around his leg and was puncturing the, sneet, the seat between his legs, and he's trying to fight the thing off with a knife and with a seatbelt. And I was able to eventually kill it, toss it in the back seat, and the policeman pulled him over and found out what was happening. Um, brown snakes are the most deadly kind in Australia. Um, you know, I thought, I thought of that illustration when I think of that our world doesn't realize that they are being bitten, that they are being consumed, that they are being um, the ve venom filling them from the poison of Satan, the great deceiver, the great serpent, as they look into the future and as he is sucking the life out of them with his deadly venom. They, they face eternal fate, uncertainty, as they stand before God. When God is left out of the picture, then you have an uncertainty, you have a future that is absolutely going to be a nightmare. And we step into this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 that gives us a reminder that life is a gift from God. Life is a treasure from Him. And how we live that life, how we are to spend it, we are to be wise in how we live. And God gives us some guidelines, even here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And as we step in here, we're going to see four, four principles that precede it, that give us some, some guidelines, and then we're going to get into two truths in verses 7 through 10. But in the background, Solomon is addressing or really attacking, if I may say, four philosophies that were prevalent in his day and really are prevalent today. Philosophies, ways to gain knowledge, ways that give you the meaning or purpose of life or the reality of life and what they point to. Philosophies that people were thinking of, but they were vanity. They were, they were emptiness. When God is left out of the picture, you're going to have the struggle that you find often in the book of Ecclesiastes here. And one of the philosophies that, or means of living that he's attacking in this book is materialism. You know, people that think, well, the more you get, the happier you'll be, right? Um, you've heard of the bumper sticker of old, he who dies with the most toys, what? He wins. Well, that's materialism, or another philosophy that is attacking is, is what we call Epicureanism, is that life is a game. Just, just enjoy yourself. You go around once in life, go for the gusto, live it up, pursue it, it's all yours. You know, it's a game, live it out. You know, we're not accountable for anything. It's really Epicureanism is, is lust on the prowl. Just satisfy yourself, go for it. And that's what we see that he's challenging in the book of Ecclesiastes. Another one is humanism. Exalt yourself. You're number one. You are all that matters. You are the best. It's all about you. I, me, mine, myself. That's a pyramid that we structure our lives around, or many people do. And then fatalism. You know, the game is fixed. It really doesn't matter. It's the Eeyore approach. Woe is me. You know, life with just no meaning, no purpose is horrible. Well, Solomon counters those principles right here in the verses that we're looking at in verses 1 to 10. And he's giving a biblical philosophy of life that will work. Do you want a philosophy? Do I want a philosophy that will, will work from this Old Testament ancient wisdom way of thinking and looking? And he's going to give us 
some principles to remind ourselves about, some truths that can't be, be shaken, realities to everyday life to be reminded. And then at the end, I want us to look in two, two, um, two truths in verses 7 to 10, and trying to challenge the big idea. In light of the realities of life, give God your all. Well, what is the all? What does it look like? In light of the realities of life that he addresses in verses 1 to 6, we have one course of action. I must give God my all. I must spend my, my days for God. I'm reading through the book Hudson Taylor right now, um, two mammoth volumes, biographies, 500 pages each book. Um, but just to see this man that came to this conclusion, raising an incredible, incredible family, legacy of godliness, his grandfather, his dad, but as a 17-year-old I mean, he was going through the motions, but still didn't know Christ as his Savior. But he gave his heart to Christ, and he just talks about that experience afterwards and getting serious for God and realizing the brevity of life that God owns him, that he wanted to live his life for God. Well, that's what we're addressing right here in our, our verses this morning. So I want us to look at the reality of life, living everyday life. There are four principles that we need to pick up on that Solomon addresses. How do I live my life? How am I to govern my life? How am I to order my life? What are some principles that will help me, if I put them into place in my life, will help me be what God wants me to be? And here's the first one. The first one in verse, verse 1, that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. That God is in an absolute control. He writes, but all this. So whenever you see a but, what should you think of? It's contrasting something, right? It's talking about something that preceded. So really, we need to kick back briefly into verses preceding. If we go even as far back as verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. So here's Solomon. He's struggling in his in, in, in life. And, and maybe some of you have struggled with this too. You look at things why do bad things happen to what? To good people. And why do good things happen to bad people? So Solomon's wrestling with that and trying to understand that. Why does it happen? Why, why aren't the righteous just showered with blessings? You know, why, isn't it, why doesn't it work out that way? But his conclusion that he gets to is that, that God is sovereign that I can't worry about these things, that God is bigger than I am, God is wiser than I am, and God has a plan that he's putting into motion, that he is still on the throne, kind of like with, with Isaiah and what we see John in the book of Revelation. So he says that, that their deeds are in the hand of God. It's all, it's all in the hand of God, in his, his sovereign hand. The righteous and the wicked and all that happens, he comes to the conclusion, the realization, it is in the hand of God. As Francis Schaeffer, a philosopher and theologian of yesteryear, wrote, God is there and he is not silent. God is there and he is not silent. So it's really comforting when we stop and to, and to think through that, that are all holy, righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, unchangeable God who's sovereign, sitting on the throne. He has a plan for me, and he's going to work it out, even if I may hurt in some of the, the situations and circumstances of life, even if I'm, I'm confused as to why it's happening, but nothing is out of his control. 
Nothing is, 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 is loose. There aren't any loose maverick molecules running through the universe. And my life is ordered in a plan according to God's glory. So we're not useless, stumbling robots tripping awkwardly through the universe, through life, trying to make sense of what's happening, but that God is sovereign. God is in control. Look at the last couple of words in verse, verse 1. Um, love, hate, man does not know. Both are before him. What is he saying here? That, that both, they're, they're all before him. Love, hate, righteous, wicked, it's before him. God, God is sovereign. God is in control. So Solomon, in this book that has journeyed down a wild road of just doing everything that wealth and knowledge could buy, comes to the end and he says, you know, really, there's, there's no purpose in it all. Then he's understanding, well, God is sovereign. Then when he gets to the end of the book, you know, fear God, keep his commandments. So, but here's a man that's coming to understand that, that God is in absolute control, that our lives are in the hand of God. God, may I rest in that, in that fact and that truth, that God, God, you're sovereign, that you're in control. Things that happen in life, I may not understand, but I don't have to be driven to, to madness. I don't have to be driven to anger. I don't have to be driven to envy, that God, let me just rest in it. It's in your hands, and, and may I leave it there. May I trust you. May I know that you're sovereign and that you are still on the, on, on the throne and you have it all in control. So number one fact, remember the sovereignty of God. The second one he gets to, the absolute certainty of death. Well, you might say, well, that's, that's pretty comforting. Isn't that comforting to know that we're going to die? <laughs> and that's what he's driving home this point. Actually, it is incredibly comforting as a reminder of a reality of life. As I look to make sense of life, as I look to order my life and how I ought to live, I want to remember, number one, God, you are sovereign. You are eternal. But I also need to be reminded that, that life is temporary for me, that, that life is on earth is not going to be forever, and that what I do on this earth, I must make an investment for all of eternity. Look at what he says in verse 2. It is the same for all since... The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one, so is the sinner. Verse 3, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun, or he's referring to just a temporalness. This, there's this unavoidable event that we are going to die. You know, I, the last two weeks... Um, hit with news. The one I was, was expecting it, um, two former friends, associates that I had back in our church on Long Island. Um, one was a deacon and one was another that was a trustee. Um, finding the deacon that passed away two weeks ago just crushed me as a shock. And I, uh, I'll say more on that in another sermon, but um, Kiki's passing and then Mark's passing um, suddenly um, this past Thursday. And I knew that that was coming. I shouldn't say suddenly because of his battle for cancer. Um, but 56 and 59 years old, young men. Um, but as I stood two weeks ago, actually 12 days ago, in the shadows of Manhattan skyline in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn on the western border overlooking the, Man overlooking the Manhattan and just grieving with this family and having the service in our hearts aching of this, at the sudden passing of, of a beloved husband and friend. 
It's a reminder of the brevity of life, and I, my perspective changes. And that's what Solomon actually says. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And that's what he's hammering home here. It's, it's a debt that we all must pay, death. But it gives us a reminder of the quickness of life, the temporalness of life, and the brevity of life. Scripture constantly bangs home this theme. In Genesis chapter 3, right after man's fallen, for out of, out of the dust that was taken, and dust you shall return. Or Psalm 89, what is man that liveth, and shall not, and shall see death? Ezekiel, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Or James 4, what is your life? It is a vapor that passes quickly away. We're reminded Solomon brings us face to face with the, the, with the certainty of death. And he's about to bang home points in verses 7 to 10. Now, in light of this, this is how we must live. Remember the song that maybe your kids sang it? You certainly probably remember it back from the, the late 1300s. Um, Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Remember doing that on the playground and the kids suddenly fall down. Where does that song come from? Perhaps you probably know. Um, but it really is written from the, from the Black Plague that was hitting Europe, England in the 1300s. And doctors, physicians believed that actually rose or petals from flowers would clean out the lungs, that it was a corruption that they were getting in the lungs and that it had to be cleansed down. And so they would, when they would go into the hospital, they would actually put petals and flowers on a patient's bed put them close to them, put them on the floor, trying to sprinkle around a fragrance that would help them breathe clean, fresh air. Some of them would even take in ashes, believing that if they could get them to sneeze out the, the corruption from their lungs, it would help them be able to then get rid of whatever they had. And so they would put ashes and call it blow it in their faces, and they would, they would then sneeze. Uh, but the result was they still fell down. They still died. Actually, that song was first heard, recorded apparently from a man that was pushing a cart full of corpses, and he sang that song. And ashes, ashes, they all fall down. Um, the brevity of life. By the way, you know how they conquered the, plague, the Black Plague apparently? Quarantine. They just stayed in their homes, and eventually it wasn't able to spread. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Um, but death is going to claim, claim all of us. And it's, it's good, it's not morbid to go to that house momentarily, often, and to be reminded and to pray a prayer such as, God, may I order my life in line, in light of my frailty. May I, may I conduct my life in light of the brevity of life. May I conduct my life in light that I'm going to be forever with you and I belong to you and how we order our lives and what we do. Had a, uh, a great conversation with an individual yesterday. We were talking through things, and he was asking how to, how to confront a person or how to talk to somebody about an issue that he was concerned in their life and how they were living. I said, ask them this question. Then when life is done, what lasting legacy are they going to leave behind? What will outlast them? What investment are they making that will last beyond their years? Do they want to be remembered for this stuff that's frivolous, that's nothingness, empty conversation? Or do they want to be remembered for God? And he says, thank you, and he took that home to the bank. But that's something we each need to be reminded of. What will I be reminded of in my life? I mean, even evaluate it now. 
if people are standing up at your funeral, what, what are they going to say about you? Oh, boy. You know, he really loved the eagles. Oh, boy, did he get excited over the eagle. Or, boy, did he love his whatever. But may we have words and heartbeat that bring God glory that are eternal, that aren't temporal. But Solomon keeps banging home this, reminding people the realities. And the third one is that insanity resides in the human hearts. You might say, what in the world? Insanity resides in the human hearts. Look at the word madness in verse 3b. Um, And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. You know, we've heard a lot about the doctrine of depravity, total depravity, that man is totally depraved, depraved. Um, that there's not an ounce of goodness in man, that we don't have the ability to suddenly have that light dawn and get bigger. Oh, I think today I will choose God. Today I'll become a Christian. The, the Bible talks about man being dead in their sins, being blinded spiritually, to be separate from God. So God comes to man. God takes away the blindness. God rips away the darkness and brings in the light. Well, this this doctrine of, if I may call it, insanity is maybe related to it. Well, what is the doctrine of insanity? That in man is just madness and foolishness. Um, first, first Samuel chapter 21, verse 13, the same word is used of David when he's at the, the gate of the king of, I think it's Goth, and he's drooling on his, because Saul was after him, he was trying to get refuge with the Philistines, and he starts to, to, to crawl or, or, or um, call Mark on the, on the fortress gates thinking if he's insane, the king will let him in. It's that same word here, insanity. Um, An Old Testament scholar, Walter Kaiser, defines it this way. It's every conceivable madness. So Solomon says, in man is this this madness, is this, 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 this wickedness, this craziness. If I can define it, for the unsaved person, it's called the old man. It's the old man, it's that link that, that ties us to, to Adam, and it's, 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 it's our, one's deadness. But in the child of God, as a person that's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, I believe the Bible says in Romans 6, Ephesians, um, Ephesians 3, and Colossians, that the old man is dead. But it's the flesh. It's the flesh that, that rises up, the flesh that demands self at the center. It's the flesh that demands throw away God, God's teaching, God's word. Do it your way. Follow what you want. That's the madness that resides. And he's speaking of, and, and man is this, this madness to do what we want. You know, we look at our world, and it's just it's crazy. It's bizarre, the things that we see. I mean, I'm, I'm really, no matter how people may tease me, I'm really a young guy. And... Um, now, in my 60 years of living, it just seems like life has changed so much, you know, hasn't it? And, and those of you that are close to my age or maybe just a, a year or two older, uh, we look at how life has changed so quickly. I can remember being with my dad my parents out in San Francisco, and the first time I saw um, a homosexual couple, two men walking, holding hands. I thought that was the funniest thing. I said to my dad, look, dad, they're holding hands. I was laughing. My dad told me to be quiet. You know, but the morality of the world, it's no longer something just, just in the closet. It's thrown right out there to the to transgender. The, the, what a weird, weird, crazy, wicked world. This past week, Fred sent me an article that just is boggling. Singles are having kids with strangers as part of the co-parenting trend. 
They're skipping love and marriage and going straight to the part about having a baby in a carriage. The latest child-rearing fad, its co-parenting, is on the rise as singles desperate to have kids um, link up with children together without romance. And it goes on to talk about how they... There's websites that you could go to and you could check out a potential mate, potential connection, and you find their bio and you read all about them and see if it would be a good match for you to have together with a child. No romance involved. We just, they just want to have a child. I mean, that's the wickedness, the perversion of our world, the darkness of it, the insanity of it all. And then reading an article last night, and uh, there are actually COVID parties. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, COVID party, University of Alabama had them and other places where people actually put money into a pot and see the first person that could get COVID, and then they get all the money. You know, the, the insanity of, 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 of our world, the craziness, the, the, the wickedness, the darkness. It's the answer to when you meet with a person and you're just, you're, 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 you're crushed. Why did you leave your, your wife and your 14-year-old and your 11-year-old daughter and it's the answer that they give to that. Or a recent converse, conversation, why, why are you doing this? Why are you living with your, your, your girlfriend in just the darkness? The answers that they give are just wicked, bizarre craziness. But, but don't you know this is what she wants to do to you? This is what she's, she's done? And the answers that are given. Or why, why did you leave your husband and your 12-year-old daughter? There wasn't another man, just went home to live with mom in Massachusetts. The, the, the crazy, bizarre answers that, that are given to this, the reason that people do things, they think that they want to pursue happiness, the madness, the, the, the corruption that lies within the pool within mankind. May we be on guard against that. May we be on guard of the madness that, that Satan is like... like um, he was warned in Cain and Abel. Cain is warned that sin is crouching at your door when God said to him, be careful, sin is crouching, it's ready to leap upon you. That's the way it's in our lives. But by the grace of God, we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. We don't have to be controlled by it, right? We don't have to be consumed by it. It doesn't have to dominate us. We can get on our knees and cry out to God, God, help me to have victory over this. But Solomon is warning these realities in life, be on guard, be alert to, to this this craziness. And he gets in verses 4 to 6. Another reality of life. It's hope that we have. He says in verse 4, But he who is joined with all of the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished. So he's talking about having, having a hope that's alive, a hope that is living. So he moves from the subject of death so he's not always a dark guy, you know. He doesn't have just a negative side to him, to the, to the subject of hope. He says, you know, but, but the reality in life is that, that we have hope. There's a hope within us. There's, there's a prospect. There's, there's hope for the living. As long as we're alive, that, that's good. And he uses a comparison, dogs and lions. Now, it's maybe kind of hard for us to, unless you're a dog hater, you know, to understand what he's talking about dogs. You know, our dogs, they're, they're pets, right? How many of you have dogs? How many of you have dogs? Right? I mean, your dogs probably, you know, you don't just keep them outside, you know, throw a piece of meat out. You probably let them inside. They'll sit on the sofa with you. Sometimes they'll take your chair and not get up. 
You know, they're like treated like prima donnas. Um, they might even sleep in people's beds and so forth and so on. People spend crazy amounts of money. You know, if they have a little cancer spot, they're going to go to... That's not the way dogs were treated back then. Dogs were, were, were ravaging packs of animals that people feared, that people dreaded. They would run, ro- roam the streets together, and they would be, be um, pretty vicious. People would chase them away. People would hate them. I'm not sure why they just didn't always kill these, these wild packs of animals. But that's dogs. So he says, it's better to be that than a lion. Now, a lion was respected. A lion was the greatest of all animals. A lion was fierce. A lion was powerful. So he said, it is better to be a living dog, a scavenger roaming the streets, than a dead lion who no longer has life. And Solomon drives home this, this reality that, that this, this truth is, is better to be living than it is to be dead. As long as one has life, as long as I have breath, as long as there is, there is movement in my heart, then there is a chance for one to live accurately. There's a chance to, to pursue the eternal. There's a chance to make an impact that will, by the grace of God, be with me for all of eternity. To make a lasting, eternal investment. That's what he's saying. Praise God that we're reminded of death, but as long as we're living, we have hope. We have hope to fix this madness. We had hope that we could turn it all around. There's a chance that we can make it all right. But he says, you know, the dead know nothing. You know, the, verse 5, the living know that they will die. I mean, we have this understanding. God, I, I know that I'm going to die. And the older I get, the more I'm reminded of that and the more intentional that I pray to God that I'll be in my conversations with people with my daughters, with my wife, with my grandkids, and and where I'm trying to push them towards God because I'm reminded of the brevity. That's what he's saying. If if we could be reminded of of life coming to an end, but yet we have hope because there's hope that we could take advantage. Isn't that awesome? That we can make things right. We don't have to live with regret as we look back and say, you know, I regret that I've done, and I, and I do regret things. I can look back and say, I wish, the boom, boom, boom. God, I wish I could change all that, but I can't change the, future, the past, but I could change the present and the future, right? I can't go back. You know, don't, don't dwell back there. Don't be moaned. Don't be grieving. Don't be crying over the past. That's really what I think Solomon's message is here. You know, there's, there's hope for the living. Change it. There's an opportunity that we have to live differently. And he's trying to bang home that theme here. He's trying to drive that home. He says in verse 6, their love and their hate, the envy of all perish. Just the earthly life is lost when there's no more opportunity. But I'm alive. There's hope that, that I don't have to live if we know Christ is our Savior, we don't have to live in a backslidden state. We don't have to live in a lethargic, complacent life. We can get our, our lives right. We can live for God. And if we don't know Christ as our Savior, then today is the day. Today is an opportunity that I get to put my faith and trust in Christ as my Savior. So we want life to live. Solomon, how should we go after it? What do you recommend? How should we live? And he gives us Two recommendations in verses 7 to 10. I'm going to take my jacket off if you're okay. I agree with you. A little warm. Verses 7 to 10. He shows us recommendation. This is how we live everyday life. This, this is 
You're concerned about all that I've just hit. Yeah, God is sovereign. Realize that death is coming. I realize that there's hope. I realize there's madness that dwells around me and sometimes within me. God, this is how I'm to live. And here's how the wise man nails it. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. He says, what? What is he saying? You know what he says? Go enjoy life. Really, I mean, enjoy life. Don't be consumed over past mistakes. Don't be consumed over, over things. Have, have you confessed it to God? Have we given it to him? Have we cried out to him, God, I, I, I'm sorry for what I've done. And if you hurt a person, go to that person. Make it right. But here he says, now enjoy life. You know, it's okay to laugh. You know, we don't have to be the serious, you know, quiet. I know we're all different, different personalities, but, but he says, go enjoy. He says, eat bread, drink wine. He's talking, not, we're not talking about go out and get drunk, all right? Their wine is just as a PS, is real, is, it's completely different than our wine today. It was always watered down. Today's wine's not watered down. Um, but he said, go out and enjoy life. In other words, don't be consumed over, don't be grief-stricken. Don't be consumed over, over the difficulties of life. Have joy. Have a merry heart. Rejoice over what God's given you. You know God is your Savior. You're alive. You have hope. You, you, you're, you're living. You know that he's sovereign. You know him personally. Now go out and live life. Enjoy what there may be. Don't fret over the insoluble difficulties of life. He says, God accepts thy works. You're approved. I mean, this is comforting for especially the child of God. I am approved. I know him. Ephesians 2.5 says that, I have, that I've been made alive in Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I know him as my savior. He has put his stamp on me. Ephesians 1.13, that I'm sealed with the spirit of promise. I have his guarantee. I am approved of God. Once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, plus what? Nothing else. Once I come to know him, I'm approved of God. Now I could go out and live life. Man, that's, that's, that's freeing. It's not like I'm trying to earn somebody's favor. Boy, I sure hope God likes me. Or if I treat someone a certain way, boy, I sure hope, you know, he'll like me. And I sure hope he'll, he'll be pleased with me. I sure hope he'll do things. God, God, God loves us. We're approved of God. It says in verse 8, let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking. Put on white garments. Well, what's white garments for? It's, it's a wedding. D- don't be like a funeral. Wedding, one type of atmosphere. Funeral, another type of atmosphere. Which one is he telling us to live like? Live like the wedding atmosphere. Be festive. Put on garments of white. Put on oil. You know, people would put on oil. We don't really do that and I'm kind of glad, um, but, you know, just to, to, to refresh your body or to make you shine or because you're happy. But if you're sad, if you're mourning, you're not going to put oil on. Your hair is going to be a mess. All of your hair looks pretty snappy this morning. But your hair is going to be a mess. It's going to be standing up. It's going to be unkept. There's not going to be any oil because you're mourning. You see what he's saying? Enjoy life. It's, it's okay to, to have a nice time. You know, we don't have to be all putting on the black garments and, you know, say, how are you doing? Well, I'm, you know, managing by the grace of God. You know, we, 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 we can rejoice in what God has given us. And that's what Solomon is, is, is pushing us to. And I love verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. God, is, God, God has given you this gift of this, this woman. Don't, don't be 
searching other places, and he, and he focuses on um, enjoyment, live joyfully. You focus on giving affection, whom you love. He focuses on a lifetime commitment, all of the days of your life. So he's just zeroing in on enjoy God's gift. See how good God is? See all that God has done for you? Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, it, do it with your might. For there is, war, there is no work or thought or knowledge where you go. The second way we should live in light of all of the realities that we hit in verses um, 1 to 6, here's what he says. Enjoy life, but secondly, give life your all. Give it your all. I mean, don't, don't hold back. Um, pursue every aspect for the glory of God. Give it everything. His counsel, in light of the inevitable realities, give God everything. Don't leave anything on the table. Attack every day for the glory of God and that you're exhausted by the time you get into bed. Um, take every opportunity. Be involved in people's lives. Be involved in connecting with other people. Um, first, bless God. Secondly, bless your household. Build into their lives. Be pushing constantly towards God, encouraging one another in the things of God. Wives, husbands, husbands, wives, and with our children, even if they're far off, with our text messages, our reminder, hey, this is what I studied in my devotions this morning. Isn't God awesome? Or then maybe as God brings people into a closer sphere, we're gonna, we want to say more about our discipleship groups. You get involved in D groups. I, get, I hear from, from my D group guys. I hear from friends with text messages, just reminders of God's goodness pushing me towards God, taking opportunity to build it in my life, and may I do that in their lives. But you see what he's saying? Take every moment, take every opportunity, whatever your hand finds it to do, do with your might. He's not saying go out and do wickedness. In the boundaries of the Bible, do it with all that you have. Take every opportunity. Stop living our lives like all that matters is I, me, mine, myself. God, I want to further your kingdom. I want to be about bringing you glory. I want to take every opportunity to give God glory and to make much of God, not much of ourselves. So as we wrap up, in light of the four realities that he hit us with in verses 1 to, 1 to 6, that God is sovereign. God is in absolute control. Nothing happens apart from him. That life is temporary. I know that death is coming. I tried to burn into my mind, and unfortunately I too often forget, but some 10 years ago when I stood at my brother's casket, and I, I don't mean to be morbid, but I wanted to remember his green lips because his body was decomposing. I loved my brother, and as I held my dad, and he was, 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 was crumbling under the pressure of seeing Rich in that, that casket, but I wanted to burn it in my mind. And I, wanted, and I said, Dave, remember the brevity of life. Today I have opportunity to serve God. And those moments as I stand in Greenwood Cemetery just rekindles that memory and that passion. Today I have to live for God. I want to live for him today. That's what Solomon is driving, is that we would take every opportunity to enjoy life. doesn't mean I have to live in regret. Or I wish I would have called my brother again, though we, we talked often. But to enjoy life, to be able to say, God, thanks for the opportunities. Let me live today for you. So how are you doing in that? How are you doing in seizing every opportunity for the glory of God? Love God with all of your mind, mind heart, and soul. That's vertical, isn't it? And what's the next one? 
That's right, Willie. Love, them, love horizontally. Love others as you would love yourself. May we never be so busy with our agenda to invest in those that need Christ and those that need to know him better. God, you're awesome. We thank you for, for life. We thank you for every opportunity that we have um, to declare you. God, may we make much of you for your glory. May we strive to know you better. May we take every opportunity to impact people for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.